Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. The musical worship was awesome this morning, was it not? The Lord was so lifted up and glorified through that music. Not just the performance of it, but what came from the heart as you all were singing those lyrics to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Extra credit. You have two options. Can you identify the passages of Scripture that the lyrics to those songs were taken from? Think about it. The extra credit will be an extra blessing to your heart that we sing lyrics that are rooted and grounded in Scripture. The other extra credit would be, can you identify which verses from the passage that we're going to look at today, some of those songs that we sang are related to? They also express some truths that are found in the verses that our brother David read for us this morning. By way of introduction, let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you, how many religions are there in the world, what would you say? How many? Suppose I were to tell you that there are only two religions in the world. Just two. There is the false and there is the true. The false has many variations. None of them are found in the Bible, God's Word. The true, there's just one form of it. One form. What distinguishes the false from the true? There is one characteristic that every false religion has, that every Christian cult has, that every man-made, unbiblical form of Christianity has. One characteristic is common in all of them. They are all a system of works righteousness. I'll explain what works righteousness is, but that's the term scholars and theologians would use to describe those systems. It doesn't matter if it's one of the so-called great religions of the world. It doesn't matter if it's a Christian cult. It doesn't matter if it's a false form of Christianity that's become false because they've added to Scripture man-made aspects. They all are systems of works righteousness. By that it is meant that in order to achieve salvation, in order to spend eternity in heaven 
with God. One must work their way there. It's what you do that earns salvation, that makes God obligated to give you salvation. It's all about your works, whether those works take the form of good deeds, whether those works take the form of prayer, faithful prayer, even multiple times a day, every day, whether those works take the form of giving to the poor or to the church or to a noble cause, whether it is participation in certain rites and rituals, whether it is doing some form of penance to make up for your sin, these are all works righteousness systems. They all focus on what you do to make yourself acceptable to God. By contrast, the only true religion in the world is not a works righteousness system, it is an imputed righteousness system. Imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the only one to ever keep the moral law of God perfectly. His righteousness by faith in him and what he accomplished on the cross is imputed, given to you, reckoned to you. Because of what Christ did, you and I benefit when we exercise saving faith and trust in what he did. It has nothing to do with what we do. In fact, we acknowledge in an imputed righteousness system, in true biblical Christianity without any man-made add-ons, we acknowledge that we are spiritual paupers, unable to do anything to please God. Even when we obey, we obey with the wrong motives before salvation. We obey out of sinful pride. We obey out of hoping we will work our way to heaven. Only two religions, the false and the true. This passage of Scripture, which our brother David read for us this morning, is the gospel, the true biblical gospel. As he read it, you may have noticed the word law referring to the Mosaic law, the heart and soul of Judaism. Judaism is the precursor of the true religion. Judaism is true and right when understood correctly as a pointer to Jesus Christ and salvation only through him. It is false, just like all the others, when it is viewed in a way God never intended the law to be viewed, when it is viewed as a way to work their way to heaven. The Jews at the time of Christ, and when the apostles wrote, they believed this, that if any man could keep the law of Moses perfectly for 24 hours, all 613 commandments 
that the rabbis have identified in the law of Moses. If any of them could keep the law perfectly, Messiah would come and set up his kingdom. And so they struggled and tried. Paul even made, made reference to that in Philippians. You may not recognize it, but he actually does write that using the terminology the Jews used at that time. He tried to be that man who would usher in the messianic kingdom by living perfectly in thought, word, deed, motive, attitude, desire for just 24 hours. I can't do it for 24 seconds. You probably can't do it for 24 seconds. Paul thought he kept the law perfectly, but he says, when the commandment, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not desire more than you should, thou shalt not desire the wrong things, or even the good things in an idolatrous way. When that commandment came in, when he understood, then he knew he was condemned and had broken the law of God. The Lord's half-brother James says, whoever keeps the law yet fails in one point is guilty of all. The moral law of God is like a chain. You break one link. It doesn't matter which link it is along the chain. You have broken God's law. With these thoughts in mind, let's get right into this passage and work our way through it. The title of today's message is, Hold Fast to Christ, Your Victorious Sacrificial Savior. Christ is revealed in this passage as the victorious sacrificial Savior who has permanently dealt with sin. He did what no one else, what nothing else could ever do. He did away with sin, and the sin question is answered for everyone who trusts in what he did on the cross. If you take one thing away today, let it be this. God wants you to know that only in Christ can your sins be forgiven. They will never be forgiven in anything else that you do, anything else you trust in, except Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. We're going to look at this passage under three headings. The first is this, the failure of the law. Remember, the writer is writing to Jews who turned from Judaism and embraced Christ for salvation. But because of persecution, some turned back to Judaism some were tempted to turn back. When we read the law, remember, it is a works righteousness system when it is not understood the way God intended it to be understood. And I'll explain what that is when we get to the right verses. But because it's a works righteousness system when viewed incorrectly, what is stated of the law in these verses will be true of every works righteousness system, every false religion, not just Judaism, every Christian cult, not just Judaism, every false unbiblical form of man-made Christianity. 
what is said of the law and the failure of the law is going to be true of everything. A system of good works, a system of prayers, a system of rites and rituals, a system of giving, a system of praying. No matter what that system is, what is the failure of the law is the failure of all those systems. The law was only ever a shadow. That's all God intended it to be, a shadow and to reveal man's sinfulness and need of a Savior. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, it's just a shadow. A shadow is not real. Perhaps with these lights, I'm casting a shadow. That's not me. Now, you didn't need me to tell you that. It's a shadow. This is the form. This is the reality. The law of Moses was a shadow. Specifically here, he's focusing in on the tabernacle and the sacrifices. In particular, the sacrifices of Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. And we'll see how that comes out. But the law was just a shadow and not the substance itself, not the very form of things. The tabernacle, the sacrifices, the high priesthood, they pointed all to one person, Jesus Christ, and the need for a messianic savior. They revealed the holiness of God and you could not approach God. We've had multiple messages, even last week and the week before, on this very idea in the previous passages in Hebrews. But it was only ever a shadow. It was not the fulfillment. It was not the substance. It was not the reality. It was a pointer to the real, to a messianic redeemer, a messianic savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The law only involved useless repetition. And remember, when I say the law, I'm talking about any system of works righteousness, one that needs good deeds or whatever else it happens to be. Only useless repetition, for the law can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, there were sacrifices in Judaism that were repeated every day. And for a person, every time they sinned. But here, with the year by year, as well as some of the other things that will come out, he's focusing specifically on Leviticus 16. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This is the highest holy day amongst Orthodox Judaism. It's once a year when the sins of Israel were carried away by a goat into the wilderness. This was the day, as we've already learned, that the high priest, with blood of a slain bull, would enter the holy of holy places in the tabernacle where God's very glorious presence dwelt. One day a year, one man, the high priest. 
But year after year, the high priest had to enter it. And then after he passed on the high priesthood to his oldest son, then his oldest son would enter year by year on the Day of Atonement. It was repeated again and again. Even the most important, the holiest sacrifice could never take away sin. It involved useless repetition. It needed to be repeated year after year. Whatever good deed you think you can do to please God and earn his salvation so you can say to God, you owe me this, it is useless repetition. Repeated a hundred times, a thousand times, ten thousand times, you're going to have to do it over and over and over again. It never stops, just like the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. It's useless repetition because it'll never make you perfect, as this passage will bring out. The law could never produce perfection, for the law can never make perfect those who draw near. It's pretty clear. It can never, not might or possibly, or you got a 1% chance, one in a million shot of being made perfect and acceptable to God because perfection is God's standard. Jesus Christ said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, you are to be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. There's only one perfection. It's just as God is perfect. But if we've sinned, we're not perfect. There's no way we can be perfect. Do 10,000 good deeds. Have you erased the imperfection of one's sin against God? The law could never make perfect. Is this a problem with the law? Right now, I'll tell you, it is not a problem with the law. God never gave the law of Moses to make anyone perfect. He gave it to show that no one can ever be perfect through good deeds, through trying to keep God's law. The law never produces perfection. Your good works never produce perfection. Your prayers never produce perfection. Your giving, no matter how great, would never produce perfection. Only what Jesus Christ did in the true religion, the true biblical gospel can produce perfection. His perfection is imputed, is given, is reckoned to you. His perfection is considered to be your own. The law revealed the failure, its own failure, by the need for continual sacrifice. If the law made someone perfect, these sacrifices, he asks a rhetorical question here, would they not have ceased to be offered? If perfection came by the law, would not these sacrifices, if these animal sacrifices, if your good deeds could produce perfection, or whatever else 
it is that a person is trusting in. If this could produce perfection, then at some point in your life, it should cease. It shouldn't be needed. You would have achieved perfection. And any man who says he's achieved perfection, I'd like to speak to his wife. <laughs> See if she agrees with that. Would these sacrifices not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Yet whether it be the Jews or whether it be someone attempting to work their way through heaven through good deeds or prayers or giving, they had a consciousness of sin. They offered their sacrifice. A person does their good deeds. They say their prayers. They give to the poor or to the church. And yet, because they know they're still a sinner, they do it again and again and again. This reveals the failure to ever make yourself perfect through any system of works righteousness. The law was a constant reminder that a person was sinful and separated from a holy God. But in those sacrifices that were offered on the Day of Atonement, a bull, a ram, and one of two goats, but in those sacrifices there were a reminder of sins year by year. There wasn't just one Day of Atonement. It was every year, again and again, those sacrifices had to be made. Again and again, you'll need to do your penance. Again and again, you'll need to do your good works. Again and again, you'll need to say your prayers. Whatever it is, it's a constant reminder that you do not have access to God. You know, the priest served in the tabernacle. The Jew who sinned, he brought his animal sacrifice without spot or blemish up to the entrance to the tabernacle, to the outer court. The priest met him there and took the animal in to put it to death. The people didn't enter. This would become the court of the priests in Solomon's temple. On the Day of Atonement, when the high priest was going to go in, the priests who normally served in the holy place, they all had to clear out. No priest could be there when the high priest went into the holy place, and then he would go behind the veil into the holy of holies. Only him, only one day a year. The way to God was not available. You did not have access to God. Only the high priest, who was a picture of Jesus Christ, could go into the very holy presence of God in the sanctum sanctorum, in the holy of holies. And only on that one day, and only with blood. God is a holy God. You, we just can't come any way we want. We have to come his way. And Jesus Christ told everyone what that way was. 
He said, I myself and no other. I am. I myself am. The way, not a way, the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He said that in John 14, 6. He is the only way. When he died on the cross, that veil which separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying the way into God's presence is now open to all who will come by Jesus Christ and trust in him. The law could never take away sin, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats. These were offered along with a ram on the Day of Atonement. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for any works to take away sin. Any great sacrifice that you might make to take away sin. There's only one sacrifice that can take away sin, and we'll see what that is. The problem is not with the law. In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, Paul writes this, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. See, the problem with the law is not the law itself. It's our flesh. That's the problem. We can't keep the law of God. The moral law of God, we're unable to keep it. There's only one person who's ever kept the moral law of God perfectly, without fail, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The law could never make anyone perfect, not because the law was flawed, but because we are. We're sinners by nature and by choice. God never intended the law to make anyone perfect because he knew no one could keep it. He gave the law to show that we can't be perfect, that we can't make ourselves acceptable, that we need a Savior. What the law couldn't do, God did. God did, not you, not me. God did. Sending his own son, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. God did it through Jesus Christ. We've seen the failure of the law. Let's look at the success of Jesus and how the writer brings that out. Whereas the law was an utter failure, Jesus Christ is a total success. The success of Jesus involved him. It begins with him identifying with us by partaking of human nature. Therefore, when he, when Jesus Christ comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. What's this, sacrifice and offering you don't desire? I mean, look at the chapters in Leviticus talking all about the daily sacrifices that needed to take place. And in Leviticus 16, the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. 
What do you mean you don't desire them, God? You, you wrote all about them. You had Moses record in great detail these different sacrifices. Those sacrifices, as Hebrews makes plain in chapter 8, those sacrifices were for sins committed in ignorance. Accidentally, they were not for rebellious, high-handed, in-your-face God's sin. They were not, I know what God requires, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do something else. And every one of us is a rebellious sinner. Romans 5 verse 10 makes that plain, that we were rebellious enemies when Christ made peace on the cross between God and man. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, made peace with, God, through the death of his son, Paul writes. God doesn't desire sacrifice and offering. David understood that. He wrote in Psalm 51, his psalm of repentance, after committing adultery and having Uriah murdered. He wrote, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. Because David did that intentionally. It wasn't, oopsie, I committed adultery. Oh, wow. Uriah actually did die when my plan was enacted. No, these weren't accidental. They were intentional sins. That's why God didn't desire these sacrifices because they don't cover intentional sins. They only serve to show for sins committed in ignorance that a Savior was needed. How much more, then, is a Savior needed for rebellious sin against God? It all began with Christ partaking of human nature when he was conceived in the womb of Mary his mother, a body you have prepared for me. Those animals in Judaism never partook of human nature. That lamb never became a human to be sacrificed. But Christ did. He left the glories of heaven, took upon himself the form of a man. And being found, as Paul writes in Philippians 2, being found as appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's the success of Jesus in willingly leaving the glory of heaven and becoming a man to die in our place, to identify with us so that he could be our substitution. He would take the place on the cross and experience the wrath and judgment of God so you and I would never experience the wrath and judgment of God if we trust in him and what he did. The success in Jesus is seen in providing pleasure to God. Notice the connection here. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, behold, 
I have come. Notice the connection. No pleasure, I have come. Jesus Christ provided pleasure to God. It's recorded three times in Scripture, two different occasions. Two Gospels record one of the occasions on the Mount of Transfiguration. God speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ gave God pleasure. When we sing those beautiful songs, even Gilson's unbelievable voice and, and, and the ensemble backing him up with that beautiful harmony, their voices don't please God. What they're singing about, who they're singing about, is what pleases God. It doesn't matter how eloquent a preacher is. It's not their oratory. It's not the words they use. It's not their, I hate to call it a performance because it never should be. It should be an act of worship that pleases God. It's who the preacher lifts up and holds before the face of God. It's only Jesus Christ that the Father is well pleased in. He's not well pleased in me. He's not well pleased in you apart from Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. The success in Jesus is seen in always doing God's will. Then I said in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus Christ proclaimed, I do always those things that please the Father. A claim no person can make. But since God requires perfection, only Jesus Christ has pleased God. Only Jesus Christ has had that success of being perfect. The success of Jesus is seen in replacing an old, ineffective system of works righteousness, works righteousness with a new system that actually works. The old covenant has been fulfilled. This is why it's done away with. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. It's no longer effective. It's no longer needed. It no longer points to Christ because Christ has come. After saying above sacrifice and offerings, you have not taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first covenant in order to establish the second. Jesus Christ has replaced every false system of works righteousness with the one true religion of imputed righteousness, his righteousness imparted to those who trust in him and him alone for salvation. The success of Jesus is seen in producing useful holiness. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's a lot I could say about this verse, but I'm noticing the time. 
So I'm going to ignore the last part of the verse and just look at this one word, sanctified. I need to give you a little theology here so you understand sanctified. The word sanctified, when it's used in Scripture, sanctified, sanctification, sanctify, sanctifying, it's used in three different ways, all related to time, past sanctification, present sanctification, future sanctification. In the past, theologians call it positional sanctification, a position. The word sanctified means to be set apart for. In the present, it's called present sanctification, continual sanctification, progressive sanctification, experiential sanctification, what we experience as we walk with the Lord in the future There will be for everyone who sees Christ face to face complete, final, or ultimate sanctification. So in what sense, whenever you read one of these words related to sanctify, you need to understand, is it past, is it present, is it future? Here, it's past. It's positional sanctification. It's when we're transferred, as Paul would say, transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is all connected with the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the offerings, the tabernacle. We've seen the context of Hebrews and the priesthood of Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and now we're in 10. It all has to do with the heart and soul of Judaism, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the offerings. Well, the vessels, the holy vessels and furniture in the tabernacle was all sanctified by blood, sprinkled with blood before they could be used to worship and serve God. That's positional. They weren't common for everyday use. They were special, set apart just for God, from the common to the special holy use. The believer in Christ is positionally sanctified out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, no longer to live for ourselves, no longer to live for our sinful desires, no longer to live under the dictates of Satan. Now, Sanctified, positionally, no longer for common and sinful and selfish use, but for God's use. This is what has sanctified us, made it possible, the body of Jesus Christ being offered once for all. He produces a useful holiness, not a temporary holiness. like the sacrifices in the law that needed to be repeated again and again and again. We've seen the failure of the law. We've seen the success of Jesus. Now we're going to see a contrast between the futility that's in the law versus the victory in Christ. For our God has won the victory. We sing that, don't we? 
the futility of the law to remove sin. Every priest stands. Notice that word stands. Okay, keep that in mind. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. Here now, the focus is not merely on the Day of Atonement, but daily sacrifices again and again and again and again. There's no stop. It never ends. This is the futility. It never removes sins. Over 1,500 years of sacrifices under the law of Moses. Day after day, sin was never dealt with. How many hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of animal sacrifices? How many hundreds even may a single individual offer? And it never removes sin. The priest stands daily. There was no place. Do you know in the tabernacle, I think our brother David mentioned this, and rightly so, there was no place to sit down. There was no, no, no chairs, no place to sit. Every priest stood in the outer court, in the holy place, and the high priest on the Day of Atonement, in the Holy of Holies. They never sat. They always stood because they always had a work to do. They knew there was no rest, not for, not for them either, not for the sinner who brought the animal sacrifice, not for the priest. They stood because the work was never done. These sacrifices can never take away sin. Nothing in the works righteousness system can ever take away sin. The sacrifice of your good deeds, the sacrifice of your giving, the sacrifice of your prayer, your participation in rites and rituals. In contrast to the futility in the law, the victory of Jesus is seen in permanently dealing with sin by the one-time sacrifice of himself. In contrast to these daily sacrifices that can never take away sin, he, having offered one sacrifice, one sacrifice for sin for all time, he's never to die again. He did what? He sat down at the right hand of God. This is the third time in chapter 1 and chapter 8 and now in chapter 10, the third time the writer says, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This would have exploded the Jew's mind. What? He's a high priest and he sat down? The high priest never sits down. No priest sits down. His work was done in that one offering of himself on the cross. Never needed to be repeated again. He sat down at the right hand of God once for all time he offered himself. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The victory of Jesus will be complete in the future. His victory over sin was complete at the cross. But there are still enemies of Christ 
who reject God's free offer of salvation. To whoever will believe, there are enemies of Jesus. Paul said we were enemies once in Romans 5 verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. While we were enemies, peace was made with God through Jesus. There will come a time when all of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. We sang about that in one of the songs today. A paraphrase from Philippians chapter 2. I quoted for you before that Christ, being found his appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The passage goes on. Wherefore, God also highly exalted him, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All his enemies will one day cower at his feet. John the Apostle, a holy man, the beloved disciple, in Revelation chapter 1, he hears a voice behind him, and he turned, and he looked, and he saw Christ, and he fell at his feet as a dead man. Christ had to raise him up. In Philippians, when it says, every knee shall bow, the form of the verb for the knee to bow, to bow, is not active, it is not passive. They are not made to bow by Christ they bow themselves out of fear of his awesome majesty, his glorious holiness. They bow. They may not bow now in this life. If you're here this morning, you may not bow your heart to Jesus Christ this morning. You may have rejected his gospel in favor of a works righteousness system. But according to scripture, one day every knee will bow. We can bow now out of humility and love for him, or we can cower and bow out of fear of his coming judgment. All his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. The victory of Jesus is seen in permanently perfecting those who trust in him for salvation. For by one offering is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. His perfect life is imputed to you. It's given to you. It's not that we're perfect, but God sees us as in a perfect Christ. When he sees us, he sees his son. Just as the Jews covered the entryway to their home with the blood of the Passover lamb, and the destroying angel passed over, and the firstborn in the house was not slain. So too God sees us covered in Christ's perfect blood, and his judgment passes over us. The victory of Jesus is seen in bringing us into covenant relationship with God. Here now, it's not just the last will and testament inheritance aspect but it's the full legal aspect of a covenant, a legal contract, a legal agreement 
And it's a one-way legal agreement. God has made the promises. He requires that we do nothing but believe. But Paul, isn't believe doing something? Isn't having faith doing something? Isn't having trust doing something? Let me ask you this. When we think about doing, we think about what? Our hands doing something. Our feet doing something. Our body moving. When you believe, do you have to have your hands in a certain position? Do your feet have to be in a certain place? Can you believe only in a church building on a Sunday morning? Can you believe in your own home, in the kitchen? Can you believe in your bedroom, kneeling by your bed? How about if you're laying down? See, it doesn't matter the position of the body. It doesn't matter what your hands are doing or your feet. Belief, faith, trust is not doing. Not in the biblical sense. Faith is placing trust in. It's like if you, if you ever went skydiving. You leave the plane at the right altitude. You pull and dispatch the chute. After that, what are you doing? We're not talking about doing uh, any kind of fancy parachuting. We just want to come down and land on the ground without breaking a leg. You're not doing anything. You're just trusting in the parachute to do what the parachute's supposed to do, get you to the ground safely. Belief in Jesus is like hanging in that parachute. You trust in him to do what he's supposed to do, get you to heaven safely without losing you. Amen. The victory of Jesus is seen in producing a desire to both know and love God's eternal moral law. He says, I will put my laws on their heart, and on their mind I will write them. This is such a key indication that you are a true child of God. Not that you never sin again. We're all still sinners till we see him face to face. But you have a new desire to know God's word. You're not content with just reading the daily bread in the morning in the bathroom. That's a vulgar picture. I'm sorry for it, but I'm trying to get a point across. You love God's word. Maybe you can't spend an hour or two a day in it, but maybe you'd like to. And his law is not just written on your mind so you understand his ways. It's written on your heart so you love his ways. You don't want to live like you used to. You want to live for him. You want to live in a way that pleases him. Know and love God's eternal moral law. This is a sign that you're a believer. Sure, sin might, might have you on the ropes for 14 rounds. You're just getting pummeled, but you won't throw in the towel. And in the final round, 
Jesus Christ gives you the victory when you see him face to face. You know and love God more than anything else in your life. This victory of Jesus is seen in forever fully doing away with the penalty of sins. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. This is not a case of divine Alzheimer's. God just doesn't, oh, wow, did Johnson ever sin? I can't seem to remember that. No, this is active. You could translate it this way, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will call to mind no more. God chooses not to call them to mind and hold them against us in judgment. They've been forgiven and done away with. He'll never bring them up to you again. He will not call them to mind and say, Aha, Johnson, you see on this day, this is what you did. You should be ashamed of yourself. He doesn't call them to mind any longer. The victory of Jesus is seen in providing forgiveness. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. You want to know for sure that you're forgiven? Is Jesus Christ ever going to be sacrificed in your place again? If you're not forgiven, Christ needs to be sacrificed again. He's never going to be sacrificed again. By one offering for all time, we read a little bit ago. He is the only one. He is the only way. He is the only sacrifice for sin. He provides true forgiveness, something all the false religions, all the works righteousness systems can never guarantee you. You know, John, in writing in his first letter to Christians in Ephesus, in the final chapter, chapter 5, he says this, These things I am writing to you who believe, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Not guess whether or not you have eternal life. Not wonder about if you might possibly, by some miracle, inherit eternal life, but that you may know. And why? Because you have trusted in Jesus Christ. That's what he says to you who believe, who have had faith, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, that you might know. If you're here this morning, you can know that you have eternal life by trusting in the true religion, by trusting in what Christ did on the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for such a glorious gospel. How we thank you for such a magnificent Savior. How we thank you for your beloved Son. How we thank you for grace that gives us what we could never have earned ourselves. We thank you for him. We thank you for his salvation. We thank you for saving us. Oh, dear God, we long for the days of eternity when with pure hearts and with nobler words, we may sing forever a new song to the Lamb, to him 
alone who is worthy. Thank you, dear God. And until that day, Lord Jesus, when you come for us, we ask for your glory and your name's sake that you would guide us, that you would fill us, that you would control us by your Holy Spirit, that we might live a life that is pleasing to you. Be pleased, dear God, to write deeply upon our minds your words and upon our heart your laws that we might bring you honor and glory by the way we live. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen.